Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. On this show, I have talked at length about the importance of eating enough protein, but sometimes eating protein throughout the day can be a challenge. However, Wonderful Pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts and is the perfect addition to your day. Each one ounce serving has six grams of protein, over 10% of your daily value. It's one of the highest protein nuts out there. But that's not all. Pistachios are also known for their fiber and better for you unsaturated fats, which we all need in our diet. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on your summer adventures. So whether you're dropping off the kids or running between meetings, fuel up with a healthy and tasty snack. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more about how these little green wonders can power up your day. Welcome to Balance Black Girl, a podcast dedicated to mental, physical, and emotional health from the Black woman's perspective. Tune in to hear from Black woman health and wellness experts giving the approachable advice you need to help you feel your best. I'm your host, Lestrandra Alfred. Let's dive in. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of Balanced Black Girl. Balanced Black Girl is a space dedicated to joy, wholeness, rest, liberation, well-being for Black women. And usually in our interview-based episodes of the podcast, we hear from Black women experts in health, wellness, mental health, spirituality, from across different professions to learn how we can pour into ourselves, take better care from those who share our lived experiences. I'm your host, Les, and I am so happy to have you joining me. Before we dive into today's interview, I had a couple of announcements that I wanted to share with you. The first is that we currently have our listener survey where we are getting some really valuable information from each and every one of you. would really appreciate your feedback there. If you head to the show notes, there is a link to the survey where you can tell us what ways Balanced Black Girl can continue supporting you in your journey to wholeness and to wellness. 
how we can support your well-being. And for those who take the survey, you will be entered to win a gift card from one of our favorite brands, Black and Green, which is an online marketplace that sells non-toxic body care products, beauty, skincare, and household items made from all Black artisans. So please, please, if you have not already, take the listener survey linked in the show notes. It would be a huge help. The next thing I wanted to share with you is the Unapologetic Retreat. I am so excited to be taking part in a retreat that is completely virtual featuring Black women creatives and entrepreneurs from various industries. So the retreat kicks off on August 7th, which is coming up. When you register, you will have access to all of the sessions from the amazing lineup of speakers who are all Black women creatives who are doing the work to show up unapologetically and laying out the blueprint for you to do the same. Basically, it's just a really dope opportunity to hear from some amazing thought leaders from every corner of the internet who are creating and taking up space and giving you permission to do the same. I'm really excited to be participating. I'm going to be leading a session on trusting your big ideas, overcoming perfectionism to create what you want to see in the world. And I would love for you to join me at this event. So whether you are a creative entrepreneur, whether you have an idea that you're not sure how to execute, or you just want to hear from some more Black women who are doing the thing, I highly, highly recommend you sign up for the Unapologetic Retreat. So it is all virtual. You do gain access to all of the speaker sessions on August 7th, but you can totally go at your own pace and take in the content at whatever pace you'd like. So you can go to balanceblackgirl.com slash unapologetic apologetic and use the code less 10 that is l-e-s one zero for ten dollars off your registration i would love to see you there all right it's time to dive into today's interview i am so excited to share this conversation with you because it is incredibly incredibly important to talk about. And today's topic is around racial trauma and how we can navigate coping racial trauma and how we can start healing for ourselves, for one another, and within our community. As we all know, 2020 has been on one for various, various reasons. But something that I think most of us are really experiencing is heightened awareness of the racial traumas that we have all faced in one way or another, particularly in the black community. None of this is new, right? We know black lives have always mattered We know that folks outside of our community often have a really hard time understanding where we're coming from and why it is so important that we continue to emphasize that Black Lives Matter and that all Black lives matter. We know this. However, during these times where there is so much heightened awareness It is really, really important that we all take time to really, really nourish ourselves. And that's what we're going to talk about with today's guest, who is the wonderful Jacqueline Yama. 
Jacqueline Iyama is a user experience designer in the wellness space. She has a degree in social welfare where her focus was on making wellness more accessible to overlooked communities. She also has a degree in user experience design where she spent a year researching what it would take to design a platform that reduced the barriers to therapy for Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Jacqueline is also a talented writer. She is a talented content creator, and you have probably seen her work on Instagram. She has created some beautiful, incredible educational content related to topics such as gaslighting, healing for Black and Indigenous people of color, and the different ways that we can pour into ourselves during this time. And I found Jacqueline on Instagram a few months ago. It was probably... April sometime. I mean, probably during the uh, banana bread and Tiger King part of uh, this here quarantine. (laughs) And I remember seeing her posts and going, oh my goodness, this right here, this is, this is gold. I really, really want to know this person. And then about a month later, when things started getting really real, really seeing her content just take off and seeing so many people learn from it and share it and and value it, which is beautiful because it it is incredibly valuable and it was incredibly valuable before people took notice, but I'm so glad that it's being shared widely now. Jacqueline is a wealth of information. I loved having this conversation with her. If you are not like driving or operating a vehicle right now, I highly recommend you have a pen and a piece of paper nearby. (laughs) She drops some gems. You're going to want some notes. Get that notes app ready. Make sure you're following her on Instagram. We have all of her contact information linked in the show notes because honestly, I learned so much about rest strategies, coping strategies that I have started implementing in my own life since we had this conversation that have been incredibly helpful and I know that they will be helpful for you as well. So let's dive into the conversation with Jacqueline. Jacqueline, welcome to the show. I am so excited to have you here. You know, you are a designer, an author. You have really created beautiful, beautiful spaces and content that supports Black folks healing, which is my favorite thing to talk about, obviously. Um, (laughs) But I would love to get to know you a little bit better and to hear more of your story and what brought you to this work. Yeah, definitely. Um, Well, first of all, thank you for having me here again. Really appreciative. So in terms of my journey into this work, I've always been very passionate about sort of working with the community. And I actually ended up getting more deeply into this work when I studied social welfare um, in undergrad. And that sort of gave me a sense of just sort of like all these different societal factors that impact the well-being of Black folk, impact the well-being of people of color and women. And that was sort of my entry into a lot of this wellness work But at the same time, I've also always been someone who's a creative. And so I got my master's degree in user experience design. And what was interesting about my degree is that I spent about a year researching and designing um, what it would look like to create a therapy platform that matches folks in our community with 
therapists in the community. And so a lot of that work sort of centered around racial trauma and what wellness looks like for us. And I had been sort of writing in this space before. I wrote a book, but then I think more recently I I pivoted to be more intentional about just sort of like creating this space on Instagram that that centers our healing. It's been really amazing so far to just sort of see how people are resonating with it and just how validating it is for the community and for me as well. So it's been really beautiful. Yeah. Oh, there's so much there that I want to dive into more. Well, first, I would love to learn a little bit more about your background in social welfare, because I don't know if I have met anyone who studied that before. I know folks who have studied sociology. Is it similar? Is it different? What does that entail? I would say it's sort of at the intersection between sociology and social work. Um, And so there is a lot of research involved when it comes to just sort of different factors that are impacting communities when it comes to just at the institutional level, at the interpersonal level. But then it also sort of looks at how to work with and how to speak to folks within the community. And so that was something that was very interesting for me. And at the time, I felt that I was like, okay, once I graduate, I'm going to, you know, delve further into this space. At the time, I was working for a therapist. And in my head, I was like, you know, it'd be great to be a therapist. But then as someone who's just always been really creative, I felt like I wasn't able to be as creative in that space as I wanted to be. And so I like worked for different nonprofits focusing on like healthcare and mental health. And then I just sort of learned about user experience design and I was like, this is it. Because um, I'm just, I'm, I'm someone who's like really in love with design, but I'm in love with design for social good. And so being able to sort of just flex my design muscles in a way that's also contributing to the community and contributing to the wellness of our community was just like this perfect intersection for me. And so that's how I kind of landed (laughs) where I am now. Yeah, that's awesome though. I mean, I love the way you put work for social good intersecting with creativity because I think as someone who follows you and consumes your content and appreciates your content, that's exactly how it feels. It's not necessarily design that's pretty for pretty's sake. It's something that catches my eye and draws me in, but the words are also healing as well. It has both, which is so Thank beautiful. You. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm really happy that it's resonating in that way. Definitely. And I think it's resonating with a lot of people in that way because, you know, the things that we're talking about now are not new, especially when it comes to racial trauma, specifically for Black people in this country. That's not new. But of course, over the past few months, it has that conversation has uh, broadened quite a bit. It's been come to the forefront quite a bit. And there's just so many more conversations around it that it is so helpful to to have that to draw on as inspiration. Definitely. No, I definitely agree with that. I feel like racial trauma is something that it just, until recently, I, it definitely wasn't talked about enough. And I'm so happy to sort of see it just being spoken about, even just within the psychology realm itself. I think it's been something that's, that's been overlooked for far too long. 
it's unfortunate that it took this long, <laughs> but I'm still, I'm still grateful that it's, you know, it's starting to be pushed into these conversations. Absolutely. So for you, having a background in social welfare, having previously worked in, in mental health spaces as you have, are there practices around racial trauma in those spaces? Are there ways for mental health professionals to, you know, maybe diagnose isn't the right word, but to work with a client and say, okay, you are experiencing these symptoms of racial trauma, or is it more qualitative? Right. So currently, <laughs> um, racial trauma is actually not in the DSM. So the DSM is like the Diagnostic Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, and it's not something that's recognized. And so like if someone comes in and is displaying these symptoms, there are therapists who won't necessarily know what's going on or what the cause is. And that's something that has been part of what has pushed me to really make sure that I'm centering the way racial trauma shows up because the psychology field is very, very centered on the white experience. And so if you're centering on the white experience in that way, issues that are only faced by, you know, black people or other communities of color are not going to be included in inside these diagnosable ways. I mean, you're not thinking of black pain, you're not thinking of trauma. And there are also a lot of therapists that perpetuate these same systems that cause this trauma. And so it's just, I think it's very difficult. And I think that's part of why you have a lot of folks and there are a lot of stories and even people that I've interviewed within the past year who have sort of shared with me how they can like go into a therapy room and you know they're talking to a therapist about a specific incident and they end up feeling gaslighted or they end up feeling like their therapist is displaying like white fragility or just like all these different things come into play into this space that's supposed to be safe and so I definitely think a lot of work needs to be done this needs to be something that's, I think, diagnosable. I think therapists need to understand how to hold space for it. That being said, there are definitely therapists of color, I would say, who are doing the work and who also just have that lived experience. And so they're able to hold more space for it. But yeah, currently the field of psychology doesn't diagnose racial trauma. But I have been seeing it being talked a lot about. And so I'm hoping in the next few years, that'll be something that, that comes to fruition. Definitely. I mean, I think with so far the events of 2020, yeah, <laughs> just this year in and of itself, it's going to kind of make that mandatory. I think if the field wants to continue and wants to be relevant and, and competent in terms of what's going on with the population. Definitely. And that's also something that was interesting that we, we learned in, at least in my social welfare program, and I know in psychology programs, you learn about like cultural competence. So it's just being able to treat people of different backgrounds and ethnicities and races. But if you're not ensuring that practitioners are actually doing anti-racism work, cultural competence can only go so far. And so I definitely think that's something that that also needs to be looked at deeper. But 
as you said, I definitely think <laughs> the current events, like it's, it definitely has to be something that's, that, that's going to change. And so I'm, I'm looking out for that. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I love what you said, though, about how if the anti-racism work is not done, cultural competence can only go so far. I think that can apply to both mental health professionals and really anybody, anybody who's looking to ally or support or not continue to perpetuate racist systems, like without addressing that inner work, you can be as aware, woke, whatever you want to call it. It's still not going to go very far. Exactly. Definitely. So good. So good. So I would love to talk a little bit more about racial trauma and how we can kind of manage that, how we heal that, right? Like we just talked about how within the mental health field, there's not yet a, you know, specific diagnosis. There's not specific training that mental health professionals have on a large scale to navigate those effects. However, it is something that is very real and something that we can definitely feel. So I'm curious, you know, are there some signs or symptoms that we may experience due to racial trauma that we can look out for either within ourselves or with loved ones? Definitely. The common symptoms with racial trauma are anxiety, depression, stress, being really hypervigilant, anger, erratic sleep, and something that people also don't talk about when it comes to racial trauma is internalized racism, which is something that I view as a form of trauma. Oh, yeah. And then in addition to that, so racial trauma, there's a lot of research that sort of talks about how it's it's a complex form of PTSD. But what's interesting about it is that, okay, so PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, it usually happens after a specific incident and you have flashbacks and you just have all these different symptoms related to that incident. What makes healing for, from racism so difficult is the fact that it's continuous. And so it's not, it's, one incident where it's, you know, you have these flashbacks and you're working with a therapist or you're working with the community to sort of heal from it. It's something where even if you work with a therapist and even if you're working with community, so long as we don't dismantle the system itself, you can still experience racism and you likely will. And so I try to be careful when I use the word healing because I think at this time, so much of what we have to do is, is coping. And that's, it's so unfortunate. There definitely are some ways that we can heal internally and interpersonally, but like at that institutional level, there's just so much work that needs to be done in order to like fully heal. So it's really, it's, yeah, it's a, such a complex, it's such a complex form of trauma. I so appreciate that distinction that you just pointed out between coping versus healing, though. It's like that's so important because it is, it's perpetual. It's not a one time event that you can then kind of unpack and navigate and understand, like maybe some other, you know, traumas may be, but it is something that is repeated around the corner, kind of anywhere you turn. And 
yeah, I, I really, really love that distinction. I've never thought of it that way, but I really appreciate you pointing that out. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. So in terms of, you know, coping mechanisms that we can use or we can leverage as we are navigating this, how do you recommend we incorporate some of those those coping mechanisms into our daily lives? Yeah, I mean... I think some of the coping mechanisms that have been shown to be helpful are, first of all, if you are able to find a therapist that's able to hold space for you in that way, and there's a lot of research that needs to go into sort of finding that right therapist, but if you're able to do that, that can be very helpful. Aside from that, I think there are other ways that we can sort of cope on a more, um, I guess, continuous level. And so being able to be in community with people who see, hear, and understand you is so incredibly healing. I think it's, it's just so important to be validated and to have that that space held for you. Another thing I would say is honestly just taking a pause because racism is not normal. I think because we have to deal with it continuously, like it's just sort of become this thing that we normalize that's going to happen, but it's not normal. And so sometimes when you have these really big traumas around race, I think it's important that if you can take a break from work, take a break from school, like take that day off because it's not business as usual. And it's really important to be able to just sort of take that space to yourself to to be able to process what happened. And then another thing that I would say is honestly activism because it's really empowering and I think it sort of gives you a sense of hope. And so if you're able to sort of incorporate that into your life, activism can look like so many, there's so many different ways to sort of be active in the community, whether that's organizing or whether that's just watching documentaries and like understanding more about yourself and gaining that sense of pride there are so many ways to sort of activate change. And I think those are are really good ways to cope. But most importantly, I think something that we often do, a common response to racism is to just numb yourself because you know it's gonna happen again. So you're just like, let me just numb myself from this and keep it pushing. I, you know, trauma gets stored in the body. And so I think it's really important for folks to actually let that out. So if you need to scream or cry or whatever it is, I think that's incredibly important. It's just so important to find different ways to, to release those emotions. And so those are some of the main coping mechanisms, but there are definitely a lot more out there that people can sort of look into. Well, those are all amazing, amazing suggestions of coping mechanisms that I loved, some of which it's, things that I think, you know, I think of, oh yeah, therapy, that is a good coping mechanism with the right therapist, but the uh, activism as coping is like, I had chills while you were talking because I never thought of it that way, but it is such a, a powerful way to cope, to, to add to the change and that sense of hope that you described. I'm like, oh my goodness. Yes. That is a beautiful coping mechanism. No. Yeah, definitely. I feel like with activism, it can be, it can be difficult sometimes because it's like you don't want to, you also don't want to overwork yourself. And so finding that fine line is incredibly important. But yes, activism is 
I think, a really great coping mechanism. And it can be incredibly healing to just be with people who are are working towards the same towards the same goal. I think it's such a beautiful thing. Absolutely. And really aids to that sense of being in community that you also talked about. Exactly. Plus, I mean, we all know my favorite coping mechanism that you said was taking a pause, all, <laughs> all about the pause, always promoting the pause. Taking a pause is, yeah, that's, that's one of the best ones. <laughs> <laughs> But I also do really appreciate that distinction between numbing because I I think sometimes we can have the intention of taking a pause or the intention of setting a boundary and it can turn into just completely spacing out, Mm -hmm. which I have experienced as well. I think it can be kind of natural to do that. And so I appreciate that distinction. Definitely. So I would love to talk to you about the four bodies. And I read, you know, the beautiful piece that you wrote that was published in the Nappy Head Club Medium column. We'll make sure we have that linked in the show notes so that if folks haven't read it yet, they can, because it was just a really beautiful, very helpful, actionable piece. And I would love to give kind of a synopsis. Of course, we're not going to give it all away because we want folks to go read it. But I would love to give just a brief synopsis of the four bodies that you outlined and also how we can use the four bodies as a tool to support our healing journeys, especially with dealing with racial trauma. Yeah, definitely. So I think when people are thinking of just like the human body in general, um, we often talk about mental health and then we talk about physical health. And so folks are often just sort of separating the body into like the mind and then the physical body but there are so many different parts to us and so there's the mental body there's the physical body but then there's also the spiritual and the emotional body and as i mentioned before you know trauma can be stored within our bodies and it can be stored in so many different parts of our bodies and so that article i wrote was really just sort of trying to highlight the ways that we can cater to the different parts of our bodies in order to help us cope with racial trauma. And so, you know, when I spoke about the mental body, I was talking about how can you sort of ease your mind after a racially traumatic incident? Usually after either seeing these incidents or experiencing them firsthand, our minds are racing in so many different directions. And so I think it's really important to just sort of, again, pause, unplug, and even just talking it out can help you process what you're experiencing in your mind. And then for the emotional body, I talk about what it looks like to release. And so sort of tied to what I spoke to before, taking the time to feel those emotions, being around people that can hold space for you and hold space for your emotions, And then even journaling is a really excellent way to sort of get your emotions out. And then for the physical body, I talk about what does it look like to transform tension kinetically? And so a lot of movement, and that can also just include resting and then moving your body, whether that's dancing or running or walking. And then finally, massaging, which was really interesting to me because. I think in the last two years, I learned about something called myofacial release, which is 
essentially a type of massage that, you know, a lot of people do or they get done and, and they tend to cry during it. And it's because trauma is literally stored in our tissues in our body. And so as those parts of your body are getting massaged, the emotions just sort of pour out of you. And so I talk about self-massaging in there. And then finally, the spiritual body is just sort of how can you return to yourself after a racially traumatic incident? And so that looks like meditating. That looks like just reclaiming who you are and, and remembering and learning who you are. And then again, I talk about organizing and activism as a way to really just sort of feed the spirit. So yeah, I feel like that toolkit has been really helpful for a lot of folks. It's also been helpful for me to just sort of have all these different ways of coping with racial trauma in one space. And so definitely recommend if folks haven't read it yet to, to check that out. Definitely. I mean, thank you so much for that amazing rundown just now. I have found it incredibly helpful. I've had it bookmarked and have <laughs> gone back to it weekly since you published it a while back because it really is that helpful. And what resonated so much for me with the four bodies and with what you outlined, both in what you described just now and what's in the article that folks will see, is really addressing how complex we are as beings, you know, and and taking that complexity into consideration when we approach our wellness. Right. So many of us are, you know, we're used to wellness in the sense of what has been marketed to us, which is very, very focused on the physical and over the past few years has started incorporating more of the mental, but those spiritual and emotional pieces are so important when it comes to our well-being and our wholeness and being able to understand those parts of ourselves and, and tap into the needs that we have there are so important. Definitely. And I really, yeah, I, I really appreciate you sort of mentioning the complexity of, of our being, because I think something that was also important for me as I was writing that piece was just sort of the dehumanization that we as a people have faced for centuries has, as you said, focused so much on the physical, whether it was just you know, all the physical work and exploitation that that our ancestors experienced. And there's no no care sort of focused on the emotional or the spiritual or or the mental effects of that. And so I think that was something that I, I really wanted to be intentional about. As you said, we're complex and there's so many different ways for us to sort of to sort of feed those different parts of ourselves. And I think that in itself affirms our humanity and that's a beautiful thing and so I really appreciate you mentioning that yeah happy to just calling it like I see it you know what I mean (laughs) (laughs) while spending more time at home I have been giving my hair time to just chill 
I've of course been shampooing and conditioning it weekly, adding Cantu Shea Butter Leave-In Repairing Conditioner and Coconut Curl Cream from their natural hair collection to moisturize. And what I've been doing was either keeping it up in a bun or a protective pineapple or in mini twists to keep it protected. And my hair has been so healthy since doing that. The other day when washing my hair, I decided I wanted to take a break from twists and from manipulating the texture, and I went back to my usual wash and go, this time using the Shea Butter Leave-In and the Coconut Curl Cream as my stylers, and I loved the results. So I applied them both to my hair section by section, and my hair was feeling really conditioned and defined, but it wasn't weighed down, which was especially great because these days your girl needs a haircut it's very easy for the curls to get weighed down while they're kind of long and heavy but it just turned out great I was so happy with the results so when it's time to stock up on hair goodies make sure you pick up the Cantu natural hair collection on your next Walmart trip or at walmart.com now let's jump back into the interview what you said just now about how there is just this long history of dehumanization of our people is so real. And I feel like what is changing in this current point in time is folks are finally understanding that. They are finally understanding the ways that Black folks globally have been dehumanized for so long. And that is quite the reckoning. Yeah. No, definitely. I definitely agree with you. And that's something I've been noticing too. And I'm just like, wow, this is, I think something about this moment in time feels different. And so, yeah, I mean, we shall see. (laughs) We shall see. For sure. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where it took a long time to, to do, and it's going to take a long time to undo, but trying to be hopeful for, for what's next, for sure. So along the same lines, I would love to talk to you a bit about racial battle fatigue, kind of the other side of the coin a little bit, um, because you shared a post on IG a while ago about racial battle fatigue. So I would love to talk to you a little bit more about what that is, right? For those folks who maybe haven't seen that yet, who've never heard of that term racial battle fatigue and how we can identify when we're experiencing it. Definitely. So racial battle fatigue is a term that was coined by William Smith, who essentially did research. It was originally focused on black male college students and has now sort of been opened up to sort of look at experiences that black folk in general and also just other communities of color experience. And it essentially sort of speaks to this exhaustion (laughs) that many of us face when it comes to navigating racist people, places, and experiences. Um, And this can look like just fatigue, tension in the body, headaches, stress. Um, It can also show up as chronic pain and high blood pressure. And it's, it's just sort of this this draining feeling because racism is very draining. Um, And so um, William Smith, essentially, he coined this term and he sort of spoke to what it is and what it looks like. And I think that in itself was such an affirming thing. 
And what I did in my Instagram post a few weeks back was I created an acronym called REST, which was essentially sort of looking at how can we cope with this. So R-E-S-T, the R stands for, you know, reaching out to a therapist or a counselor who is able to make space for you. E stands for being able to excuse yourself and just sort of set boundaries around triggering people and triggering spaces and triggering experiences because you you have the right to do that. And I think a lot of times we don't realize that. S stands for seeking out support from loved ones who, again, are able to make space for you. And then T stands for taking time to just rest, nap, nourish yourself, and relax. And I thought this would just be like a very sort of helpful and memorable way for folks to sort of think of different ways to to re-energize themselves and pour back into themselves after having to just sort of navigate this space, which in so ways can be very exhausting to our community. Oh my gosh, 100%. I love the acronym of REST. I think it's it's just such a great, like easily digestible, good reminder of those different ways that we can also address and nourish and take care of self. Yeah. Yeah. It just, we need those reminders. We totally need those reminders when we're just fighting for the cause. And also just having the name racial battle fatigue to put towards those feelings. It's that validation of our feelings are real. This fatigue is real. How draining this all is, is real. And even just being able to put a a name to the term is so helpful. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point. And something that I've noticed just in general with a lot of the work that I'm putting out, some really heartwarming comments that I get from folks is centered around sort of what you just said about being able to learn about just different terms or different words or having things articulated in a way that they weren't before is just incredibly validating. Because I think a lot of us, we have these experiences, we're holding these traumas, but there's just not enough space for us to express them and and just figure out like, what is this that I'm actually dealing with? And so, as you said, being able to articulate it, being able to figure out that there are names to a lot of these things that we're experiencing is, I think that's a sense of acknowledgement, which is a step to healing. And I think that's really important. 100% could not agree more. And there have been, you know, over the past few months, we're all learning. Like I'm, as I'm learning about these terms, it does give this sense of like, ah, I knew I wasn't weak or I knew I I wasn't, you know, (laughs) I knew it wasn't tripping. I knew something wasn't right with how I'm feeling when I'm engaging in these things and these activities. It just, it's like a peace of mind. (laughs) Definitely. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, you know, and this also connects to, to what we were talking about earlier when we were talking about racial trauma. And again, just really that, that work of describing and validating these experiences. I think as that continues, it will hopefully 
build a more culturally competent society where folks are more aware and conscious of how our behaviors impact one another. Right. Exactly. I agree a hundred percent. So I know we've, we've referenced a couple of your Instagram posts, you know, throughout this conversation because they are so helpful. Like if people are not yet following (laughs) you on Instagram, I don't even know what they're doing with their lives because it's just like the (laughs) content is that good. So obviously we'll make sure we have your, your account linked in the show notes in case someone isn't following you. Um, But the post that you had that caught on like wildfire, at least that I saw, um, was the gaslighting 101 post. I think that was, that (laughs) post created a lot of aha moments for a lot of people. And, you know, it had these great examples of common phrases of racial gaslighting. And I remember reading it for the first time and thinking, oh, I've been told every single one of these things. Mm-hmm. Every single one. I, I think so many of us have, right? Right. I think what was so interesting about that was, again, it ties back to, to this idea of how the psychology and the wellness space has not done enough work to to just create tools that are are specific to our experiences. Because everybody knows what gaslighting is and you have like every therapist knows what gaslighting is and they know how to recognize it if someone is talking to them about it. But then this idea of like racial gaslighting, there seems to be this cognitive dissonance and it's just, it's been very interesting to see, but yeah, I think for me that post was just, I just wanted to sort of connect the dots because I think something that people don't, when people think of racism, they're just like, oh, it's like this bad thing. But then it's really this multifaceted abuser. It's it's a form of abuse. And so when people see words like gaslighting and just sort of associated with racism, they're like, oh my goodness. (laughs) What was really powerful, I think, about that post was there were some folks on there who were like, I've definitely done this before. Mm-hmm. And now I realize what it was that I was doing. And so that was something that was really interesting to see. And then on the flip side, when it comes to sort of our communities, it was really heartwarming to see folks just being able to like understand, like, as you said, like I knew I wasn't, <laughs> I knew I wasn't overthinking this. Like there's something so invalidating about these questions, like they're not just harmless, they're coming from a place that is meant to sort of just invalidate you or make you feel like you're irrational when really you know your experience better than anyone else. And if you're someone who has experienced racism, you you just we just know what it is. Oh, <laughs> like yeah. we, you know, like we don't need the proof and all of that. Like we understand it because we've had to spend so much time seeing it and experiencing it and learning and reading about it. Whereas, you know, folks who don't experience racism haven't had to do that. And so that was also something that I talked about in that post, which is like, your experience is your expertise. Like you don't need to prove to someone why what you experienced was racism. Like that's, and I think what was really 
important for me with that was, you know, it's really draining, like racial, like gaslighting in general is just draining. And so I think being able to decipher when someone is actually trying to learn versus when someone is really just trying to deflect so that they can avoid accountability mm-hmm. is incredibly important. And so I think if you're in a situation where you recognize that someone is just trying to avoid accountability, my advice is honestly to just sort of create boundaries and and just exit left because <laughs> that's what gaslighting does. It's Part of the tactic is literally to exhaust you so that you're no longer in a position to defend yourself. Um, and so it's really important to know when someone is trying to do that and to just sort of set that boundary and take space to sort of pour back into yourself. And I think for me personally, like a couple of years back, I was definitely that person who, like, I felt like I had to defend everything. And I was just like, this is just so draining. And it's also like, I know what I'm experiencing is real. I know what I'm experiencing is true. And like, it's not my job to make someone see that, especially if they're committed to misunderstanding me and just sort of recognizing that like accountability will always feel like an attack to someone who's not ready to sort of expand their mind has, has helped me just like pause, set my boundary, exit, and then pour back into myself. And the thing about gaslighting is that it, it makes you question yourself. So it'll make you question you, it'll make you question your experience, it'll make you question your truth. And so in those types of situations, it's really helpful to just like write down what happened to actually have like that, like just that written evidence for yourself. And so journaling is really important. I think something that I've done is just like creating affirmations, affirming myself, affirming my voice, affirming my experiences. And then again, spending time with people who who see you and understand you can also be incredibly um, empowering. And I think those are ways to just sort of just sort of validate yourself after having to interact with people who are like going out of their way to, to invalidate you really. Oh my goodness. I mean, you just preached a whole sermon just now. (laughs) 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 Oh, it was so good. So good because you're so right. Like when people are committed to misunderstanding you, they've made their their decision. Right. They're they're more interested in debating than understanding. And I don't think our lived experiences are up for debate at this point. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, that's that's real. And it's just like when you when you like start to recognize that, it just it just becomes a lot easier. One hundred percent. And I do I love and appreciate it that you shared those people who have also kind of had that awakening and have stepped into it and said, Oh wow, I have I have definitely said these to people before and that makes me rethink my behavior because I think that is important and I don't know if we hear that enough. Like, you know, you are so nice and you describe it as cognitive dissonance. And I'm like, mm-hmm, I see the girl bosses who know exactly what gaslighting is when a, a man at work is saying X, Y, Z, and then they come to me and do the same thing and magically don't understand. Right. Um, 
you put it a lot more eloquently than <laughs> me thinking, you know, y'all got me messed up, which is kind of <laughs> my, my terms for it. But it's so true. We know when something doesn't sit right in our spirit and we know when someone is trying to exhaust us and, and knowing when to leave that alone and let them be committed to whatever they're committed to is so important for our peace. Yeah, exactly. So good. So I would like to talk a little bit more about just how you pour into yourself. I loved what you shared about journaling, writing down what happened and affirming your experiences when experiencing gaslighting. But what else is in your wellness toolkit? How do you take care of you? Yeah, definitely. I'm someone that's really, I'm all about like nourishment and movement and sound and nature. And so I definitely have like little routines throughout my day that I incorporate to just sort of help me stay grounded. So in the morning, I usually start off with just some simple um, deep belly breaths. I just find those like so rejuvenating for me. I can't go a day without (laughs) making an acai bowl. It just gives me so much energy. It's so delicious. Um, And I feel like it just sort of like gets me started. And then I usually, I'm someone who just loves music and dancing. And so I usually just dance for a little bit. I'm listening to Afro beats. Like that's something that I think is so incredibly healing. And then I usually sort of start my day. And then in the evening, I usually like find ways to surround myself with nature. So whether that's just like taking care of or talking to my plant or (laughs) going outside for a walk and just trying to like be in nature or like sit in a park is something that's, that's really healing for me. And then I usually just end my day with journaling. I have a sort of just like a general journal And then I have an intuition journal that I got this year, which has been really powerful for me because I feel like it's just sort of reminded me that like I know (laughs) and Mm -hmm. and that's just been very, because I think so much of society tells us that we, we don't know what we need. And so being able to just like actually write things down and connect the dots and and remember the times when my body told me this and maybe I didn't listen and it turned out to be right. <laughs> that's been something that's been helpful for me to, to just build that sense of trust in myself. And so that's something that I usually do in the evenings. And yeah, those are just like, I guess, tidbits of my, <laughs> my daily routine. Beautiful though. Those are all such, just such amazing practices, the nourishment, the movement, nature, I would love to get more information about this intuition journal because that sounds <laughs> yeah. lovely. <laughs> I'll, um, I'll like send you a link after. It's like a really awesome. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. And we'll put that in the show notes as well too, because our, our community loves journaling. So all the journaling resources are greatly appreciated. Amazing. Okay. I also have to ask, what kind of plants do you have? I get very excited about plants. <laughs> know what hold on okay it's too far I don't know what this plant is called (laughs) I don't know she's really pretty I call her Gaia yeah she's just I feel like we grow together (laughs) it's been a really amazing journey and then I have some like mini cacti 
that I just love taking care of as well. So, yeah, I, I think I'm definitely a person where like when I have more space, I will probably be surrounded by plants. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, currently I'm just, I'm just trying to keep it simple until I'm in that space. Totally, <laughs> totally. But I, I love that you included taking care of your plant in your kind of nourishment self-care routine because it is really amazing how good how good for you plants are and how good it feels to take care of a plant. <laughs> I love them so much. <laughs> yes. Some of my friends call me like foliage queen because I'm just, I don't know, I feel... I just feel so at peace in nature. I feel so at peace around plants. I just, yeah, (laughs) very enthralled. Yeah, it is. It's just such a beautiful practice and something that's very simple to do. And, you know, you learn a lot. I've, I've killed plenty of plants in my day. I'm kind of in the process of killing one of my plants right now, unfortunately. But even when that happens, you know, you learn and (laughs) you do better. Definitely. (laughs) So Jacqueline, what does being a balanced Black girl mean to you? Ooh, you know, actually, I think this ties into something I I wrote about recently, which is just sort of thinking about how to holistically care for ourselves. Um, And so for me, I would say being balanced is when I can sort of pour into myself into the different parts of myself, um, but also pour into community. And so me being able to sort of write and design and educate for the community, but then also be intentional about sort of unplugging and taking time to cater to my emotional and spiritual and physical needs is I think how I remain balanced because I think it's very easy. I've definitely been the person who is like all about community and like not finding time to pour into myself. And it's just like, that does not work. (laughs) And so having that balance of just sort of thinking about self and community care and figuring out ways to balance that has been like life altering for me. And so, yeah, I would say that's, that's my idea of being a balanced black girl, just sort of thinking about self care, thinking about community care. Yeah. Mm, beautiful. I love that. I love that so much. And and the two, I think, work together so beautifully and you can't really have one without the other. I think a lot of people do, unfortunately, sometimes get caught in the trap of, of leaning too much into one or the other, often, especially as women, pouring into other people and not self. And, and I love the way you described that. Definitely. Yeah. So Jacqueline, how can we keep in touch with you? How can we support your work? Definitely. I think honestly, I'm always sort of sharing out work on Instagram. So my Instagram is Orbochuku. And I think that's the main way for now. There are some projects that I'm working on, but I'll probably announce them on Instagram. So yeah, I think Instagram for now is definitely the way to sort of keep in touch with me. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much. Well, we will have your profile linked in the show notes so that folks can follow. And then of course, you know, as you share things you're doing, we will share and 
I just really appreciate you being here today and for just all of the helpful, incredible information you shared with us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on here and I love the work that you're doing. (laughs) Oh, thank you. I mean, I love the work that you're doing. It's so needed and appreciated and I just cannot thank you enough. Definitely. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Balanced Black Girl Podcast. I hope this conversation helped inspire you on your own personal self-care and well-being journey. To continue the conversation, make sure you check out our website at balanceblackgirl.com where you can find show notes and more information about each of our episodes. And you can stay in touch with us at Balance Black Girl Podcast on Instagram, at Balance Black Girl on Facebook. And if you haven't done so already, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps the show. Thanks again for tuning in and keep taking care. <laughs>